0: This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight, we are talking about employment law, anxiety, gynecological issues, also going to be talking about intimacy. And also, at the end of the program, are there things that have triggered you in this pandemic? And now, it's time for the podcast joyous Passover and Happy Easter to all of you. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse and host of this Program, welcome to everybody listening out there. Hope you've enjoyed some time socially and physically distancing from from people, yet connecting with those you love. And we have to connect in a slightly different way these days. Uh, we're connecting here in the studio. I have Brandon behind the boards, and uh, good evening, Brandon. He's in an entirely separate room than I am. We've wiped everything down. We have microphone socks, the whole nine yard. <laughs> The COVID-19 situation is an extraordinary time in our country and the world, and I will continue to help you navigate through the masks, the myths, and the mayhem as we learn more and more about this virus. This devastating virus has killed thousands around the world, and that number is increasing Rapidly, exponentially in some areas, yet in other areas, because of our good behavior, which is important on Easter Sunday, um, we have seen a bit of flattening of the curve in certain areas. And we'll be talking a little bit about that tonight on the program. Remember, the show is not a replacement for a visit. And these days, it's a virtual visit to your doctor for whatever ails you. But you know what? Some people are still afraid to go to emergency departments or to even feel that they're going to put any added burden on. On the healthcare system, we're going to be talking about that tonight as well. Uh, So thank you for joining me. If you have a question for me or there's something you'd like me to cover, feel free to email me at com, or call me anytime at 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Tonight on the program... We are talking about lots. We're talking about employment law. There's lots of questions and applications and wondering uh, who's going to get what, when, where, and why, Uh, whether you're a business. So I have um, an employment lawyer coming on again. Rose Keith of Harper Gray joins me. Also going to be talking about anxiety. Dr. Gurhi Parhar joins again in the second hour at 9 o'clock to talk about or answer all of your medical questions and talk about what we know about the coronavirus from a scientific perspective to date. Also going to be talking about anxiety and also many people are triggered during a pandemic. Our lives have changed dramatically and and so people can become very sensitive with something somebody may have said. So we're going to be talking about that and Brita McLaughlin, a life coach, joins me a little bit later and I'm also going to give you a little secret, little tip on how to stay connected from an intimate perspective um, through technology. It's not what you think. Uh, as of Sunday, the government has reported more than a 1,000 new cases in Canada and 63 new deaths in the last 24 hours. Now the country stands at 24,383 cases of the coronavirus and 717 deaths. And this has had a tremendous impact on the health and well-being of many people. And health is... There's so many aspects to health, and there's, of course, physical health, which is probably what comes to mind immediately on a day like today and the week that we've had with Passover. We think of spiritual health. We also think of emotional health and mental health, but we forget quite often... And, and maybe this pandemic has reminded people of financial health and financial health is critically important. And uh, so right now on the line, joining me is Rose Keith. She is a lawyer with Harper Gray, uh, who specializes in workplace law. Good evening again, Rose. Hi, Maureen. Happy Easter to you. You as well thank you so much so let's get right into it. Um, we've had a few questions uh, that have been sent by email and so I'll read that that question actually hopefully <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> technology anyway I, I'm <laughs> where did it where did it go? Uh I sent that to you, didn't I? Okay. You did. I did. So here I'm going to um but lots of people we had this week while I get the question up. Um this week we had the CERB open um for applications for people and and it had um had to do with uh you know, people were to apply in their dates of birth, but I have a quick question for you. I know that one of the requirements was um one of the requirements was that you had to have earned $5,000. You had to have lost income due to um, COVID. But on that $5,000, does that have to be um, income, like uh, taxable income, or could it be dividends? Is there a differentiation between that? I don't know that the government's clarified that. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Excellent. I haven't
1: seen anything on that.
0: Okay. Thank um, you. And, and the worst that would come is if somebody did get dividends versus cash or, you know, um, then I suppose they could it would just be clawed back by the government in a year from now. Yeah.
1: And, yeah. you know, the way that that program has been set up, it has been set up for self-employed people who are the ones who are probably getting dividends. So I I think as long as it's income on your tax return, which a dividend would be, Mm -hmm. you'd probably be fine. Okay.
0: All right. So I found the email, fortunately, from Rob. Uh, Top question. Our employers applied, uh, sorry, our employees applied for EI, but ended up being placed on CERB. I am looking at the opportunity to bring them back for two months due to the recent 75% wage subsidies. We do we have a few in-house projects that we can work on, but zero sales since we are given the industry that we're in. My staff are concerned if they return to work and come off CERB for a month or so, but then need to go back on assistance. If this continues for a longer period of time, they will not be able to access the CERB support at that time. What what are your thoughts, Rose?
1: A couple of key things to have in mind there. So the whole point of the, Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, which has gotten parliamentary approval, is to allow employee employers to bring employees back and to put them back on the payroll whether you have work or not. Um, the requirement is that you have to have a 30% reduction in your revenue. Um, and if you do, then the government will subsidize 75% of the earnings. They ask that if you can, you... Uh, top them up to 100. percent There's no requirement that you do. So um, any employee that you've let go, the government's stated purpose on this is so that people get reemployed. And of course, on the wage subsidy, they can make they will end up getting 847 a week as opposed to 535 a week that they would or 500 that they would get on the C- CERB. So they're in a better position. But if ultimately, despite the existence of the wage subsidy and despite the existence of the um, of the ability to take advantage of as well the a refund of Canada employment insurance benefits and um, uh, EI payments that are made by the employer, if despite that, as an employer, you felt that you had to lay them off, Um at a future time, I think it would still be the same test will apply. You know, have they had adverse job-related consequences because of COVID-19? Have they lost their income? Are they 15 and over? And have they had an income of $5,000 over the last 12 months? So theoretically, they could get go back. But the important thing to keep in mind is that the wage subsidy, it's not contemplated that all these people that are coming back to work or actually working. It's just that they're going back on the payroll.
0: So they don't necessarily have to work. No, no. Okay. Uh, so this gentleman sounds as though he has worked for his clients, uh, for his employees from clients. Yeah. And so yeah. would he then, it would be his decision whether he would top those employees up to the 100% up by the That's
1: correct.
0: 25%. Yeah. So that's interesting. I didn't realize that people didn't have to be working. It's just really sounds like. So, is it just to keep businesses open through this time period?
1: It's to keep
0: employees connected to their employer
1: so that when this all lifts and we're able to go back, people still have that relationship with their employer, businesses are ready to go, and they've still got the employees.
0: Oh, very interesting. Okay, he has another question here. Also, I have a few staff that we would only be able to bring back for 10 to 20 hours a week on the 75% wage subsidies. Unfortunately, it seems that they would presently lose all their CERB if they received any work. Are there any options that might allow them to return for a smaller amount of hours but not forfeit all of their CERB monies? Might this be something the government would look into? And I know you're not a government lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, bring them back on the wage subsidy. Bring them back on the wage subsidy. Yeah. Even the 10 to 20 hours a week. Yeah. Because they actually don't have to work, as you said. They don't have to work. So it's not about the amount of hours they're being being brought back for. Very interesting. No.
1: No, the government's aware that a lot of these businesses have shut down. Okay. They're aware of that. And um, what they want employers to do is bring these employees back on the payroll regardless of whether they're working or not, it gives the employee more money in their pocket than what they have in the CERB. It keeps them engaged with their employer
0: and it makes us ready to go when we're able to do so. Right. And and typically in any business there would always, I mean, I can't imagine a business that would have nothing to do. <laughs> I mean, it's nice for people to get paid and not have to do any work, but most businesses would have some work whether they're going to scrub the place down if it's a restaurant or yeah. re- redesign things or do some planning or financial work. I mean I know a yeah. lot of people whose finances are not in order um, even prior to this, so that you know they needed to get their taxes in order you know back taxes in order in order to file or to apply yeah. sorry. Um, So there would still be lots of things, but it is that connection with the employer. I I did not realize that. Yeah, that's great.
2: And it'll be great
1: for the employees to have something, right? So to have that little bit of contribution to their their workplace is fabulous for everyone.
0: That's right. And then they can pay rents and and this kind of thing. They can actually participate in the economy a little bit, which is going to struggle to come back, I would imagine. Okay, Rose, those are excellent questions and excellent answers. If you have a question for... My lawyer, Rose Keith of Harper Gray, employment lawyer. She's my lawyer now, on the air. I can't afford you, Rose. (laughs) Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. My guest is Rose Keith. She is a prominent employment lawyer at Harper Gray. She joins me on the line to answer your questions. Hello again, Rose. Thanks for hanging on. Hi. And I do want to say, I was joking before about... um, lawyers and um, you being a lawyer, but everybody has been struck by this. <laughs> I, you being a lawyer and then I can't afford you, but, <laughs> you, you know, there's really nobody whose business hasn't been affected by this in some way or another. Yeah. Yeah. And so I didn't want, uh, you know, to sound as though I was being callous um, at all or insensitive to the fact that um, that everybody has had... Uh, negative impact here. So um, I have another question for you here. Uh, here's one, writing on behalf of my son, he's been working with in a healthcare type industry as a casual employee for the past couple of years. The area he is working has scaled back drastically due to COVID-19, so hours are few. He may only get one eight hour shift a week. Would he qualify for the CERB? By all information, it appears that he would not as he is still able to get a little income. Great question. And that mm-hmm. comes from uh, Elaine. Thanks Elaine.
1: Yeah, it is a great question, and it's something that's been recognized by the government as one of the deficiencies in the currently drafted CERB. So the other one is students, of course, but those people who are working maybe eight to 10 hours a week or not making enough money to survive, but it disqualifies them as, the, as it's currently written from the CERB. So I think what we can expect to see in the next week or so is some revisions to the CERB to capture those people. Right. So my impression is the government is very aware of all these different situations. And they've said repeatedly, this is, not all that we're going to do this is what we're doing right now and one of the circumstances that they have identified is exactly that one and I'm so, so gl- I think we'll see somebody
0: yeah I'm glad that uh, Elaine asked that question because I know a few nurses who are moms and they're casual nurses and so mm-hmm. they haven't been able to get that much work and one hadn't been able to get any shifts for two weeks because there has been a redeployment of operating room nurses for example to the covid floors and and the yeah. hospital capacity is down and the electrical surgeries have been canceled. And, and so for a number of reasons, the casual nurses aren't getting the hours that they uh, want. And so should somebody say as a casual, uh, well, I'm just not going to pick up that shift and I'm just going to go straight to the CERB? Is that an option?
1: Um, well, your nurse friend that you've referenced, the one who hasn't had work for 14 days, uh-huh. she would qualify for the CERB. Okay. So if you've had an interruption of earnings for 14 days, you qualify. Okay. For other people who can pick up some work, and especially if they're in an essential service, I think what we'd all like to see happen is for them to pick up that work where it's needed and for there to be a change to the CERB, which...
0: I'm expecting this week or next week. Oh, that's fantastic news. And I have another question here for you. I work as a carbon fiber technician and it is very much non-essential job manufacturing company. We do try to follow the rules with social distancing and cleaning as much as possible. I rely on transit as my brother needs our car we share more for his work. We've been given instructions from HR department for coronavirus and quite a few people have taken time off to go on EI. However, I am just hearing different stories about what we can do. We were told you can self-isolate for 2 weeks if you have a fever, cold, and then come back after two weeks. Then people who applied for that are saying, no, you do not need to come back. You can stay home, collect EI, and be indecisive to work as the feds want you home. Then there is what plan EI, is what EI plan do you apply for apply for regular benefits if you only syf- self isolate and feel unself- unsafe to ride public transit or apply for new Canada emergency funds anyhow i just know my mother is wanting me to stay at home as she has poor health i can find it i find it confusing as heck i plan on just applying for something after easter <laughs> Thank you, John, for your question. <laughs> Just to apply the for whole- something, John. I like that. That's what I would do. A <laughs> whole lot of stuff in there. So
1: basically, if if you are not working because of COVID nineteen, one way or another, so whether it's your self quarantining, your business is shut down, um, you you don't feel safe going in because of public transit, as long as you haven't voluntarily quit your job, which she's not talking about doing, then you would apply
0: for the CERB. Oh, that's great. That's excellent advice. I did not realize that. Yeah. In
1: fact, like even parents who have to stay home because their kids are home now, they're entitled to the CERB if they can't work because kids are home because of COVID-19 and there's no childcare available to them.
0: That's right. And so if people had further questions for you, Rose, although I would like to bring you back on the program, because as the programs of the feds, you know, up their game here, although they've been extremely generous, um, you know, I'd like to have uh, you be able to answer questions, but how could people get in touch with you if they wanted to?
1: Um, Through Harper Gray. Um, But what I would tell people, we have a ton of resources on our website. So it's HarperGray.com and there's a COVID-19 resource hub. And under that, if you go under workplace law, we're constantly writing blogs. We've got a really detailed chart on there of what's available to people. And just go on there get the information that you need. It's all written and it's easy to understand.
0: She's an obstetrics and gynecology resident at the University of British Columbia, and she's here to answer your COVID-19 gynecological and reproductive questions. She is Dr. Nicole Thompson. Good evening, Dr. Thompson. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you. Happy good holidays to, <laughs> Joyous holidays <laughs> to you. And thank you for cool. being on the front line.
2: Well... Yeah, and thank you and everybody else for staying home. I can't tell you how proud I am of our city for really like coming together and doing this. I'm proud.
0: That is that is awesome. I stay home a bit, but I am also on the front lines too. But not as much. I do a lot of work from home. So, um, but anyway, yeah. nonetheless, I know you're you're right in there. And one of the concerns, um, you know, healthcare is such a, uh, a contentious issue. It's such a topical issue. Uh, there are inequities in healthcare for sure. And now there are added fears and concerns, especially for uh, people who may consider going to the emergency department and think that, well, maybe their health concern isn't that bad. And a lot of these are are gynecological issues or reproductive issues, or they may feel that they don't want to put a burden on the healthcare system. Is that something that you're seeing? And as a result, uh, people are having additional issues that they may not have had we not had this pandemic?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's no, I mean, I don't have any sort of official data or anything like that right now. But I do work at the Vancouver General Hospital um, and in the gyne emergency um, sort of area. And we are actually seeing a pretty significant decrease in volume of patients. Um, But we are seeing patients who, and again, this is anecdotal um, and just from my experience, but patients presenting with higher acuity. So patients who maybe would have presented a couple of days before um, have sort of let their issue get pretty significant. So, you know, we're seeing vaginal bleeding come in with like higher rates of anemia or sorry, like higher levels of anemia or like decreased uh, blood levels. We're seeing people with um, more pain. We've seen some ruptured ectopic pregnancies, which we haven't seen a lot of um, prior to um, some of our abscesses and cysts and things like that in the vulva area that we drain are, you know, they're much larger than what I'd seen in the past. So I think people are trying a lot of home remedies, um, you know, trying not to burden the system and also out a fear for coming in. And, you know, I really appreciate you having me on the show because the message that I'd like to send too is that, you know, as much as we appreciate people trying to be judicious with healthcare care resources, we are still there, you um, you know, there's always a gynecologist on, and if you're concerned or scared, um, we have the resources to to treat you, and we also, you know, have the resources and the PPE right now, or personal protective equipment, um, to keep us and you safe, um, you know, from from COVID.
0: So, and there's lots of safety. I think some people might be afraid, a, for the burden, or you know, the potential burden they're putting on the healthcare system, but b they are scared to go into the hospital for fear of contracting COVID, but there's been lots of safety precautions implemented in the hospitals.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I just, I'm again, so proud of our environmental services folks. Um, They're in there like double washing everything. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a resident. I get a lot of emails as it is. Um, But like from our leadership and policymakers and things like that, they're constantly updating You know, our personal protective equipment practices and keeping us abreast of what, you know, is happening and what the research has been from countries like China and Italy, um, you know, who've been dealing with COVID for longer than we have. So, you know, I I do feel very fortunate that we're in a place that, you know, is managing this crisis the way that it is.
0: Uh, yes, uh, we certainly are doing a a very good job. It would appear um and and so for for women who you know I have to say I was on this family zoom thing tonight, and we I come from a very large family, a large extended family as well and and so people were throwing out medical questions there and there's some medical people in the family but but the one who decided to put their um you know, answers out there is a little bit more on the natural side of things. And so you mentioned home remedies. Um, and, and, you know, some of the, some of the yeah. family members were listening to, you know, cinnamon for hypertension kind of thing. Um, a, a, as opposed to even your basic conservative measures of, you know, lifestyle and, and exercise and, and nutrition. Um, and so what are some of the messages to women out there who, where, where you said home remedies, what are the dangers of some of those home remedies and Delaying getting care as it relates to uh, reproduction or gynecology or even sexual or even sexual health.
2: Yeah, so I think you know. I, again, I haven't seen people be super creative with a lot of home remedies here right now. Previously, before I had been seeing like garlic in the vagina trying to treat cervical dysplasia and things like that, and um, that's definitely not recommended. But Even with more conservative strategies, like using sit baths is is a good thing for like some vulvar um, abscesses and injuries and things like that. But um, there is a point to which you do need to come in um, and, and utilize medical therapy for. You know what we can offer
0: because one of the, one of the risks are of um, having a cyst that grows too large and, and somebody tolerating the pain um, for too long of a period of time. You know, depending on the area where it's located, uh, can lead to bladder issues. for, oh, for example, yes.
2: yeah, most definitely. I you know we have seen cases of some of these that grow so large that they actually obstruct the urethra um, and people are unable to to urinate. Um, so, I mean, they and they are pretty significant and it it can become infected and cause sepsis or like a full body infection. So we just, you know, I guess my message today is just if you are concerned and, you know, you feel as if you need to seek medical care, like we are here for you um, and we'll be as safe as possible.
0: Exactly. Um, Go ahead.
2: Oh, yeah. No. And I guess just to add in there, too, with the, the sexual health comment, too, um, you know, I, as a gynae, I strongly believe that sexual health is part of, you know, overall healthcare. And you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't have access to their partner right now because of the pandemic or social isolation and things like that. And and that can be really challenging. So, um, I think you're going to talk about this a little bit later on your show. But some like virtual strategies and toys, vibrators, things to help couples stay connected, because um, this is a crazy time. This is and we, there's not a lot of normalcy.
0: There isn't a lot of normalcy. And and there's also an increase, uh, speaking of um, women's health, uh, there's also an increase in some domestic violence. And it's not limited to just women, but we have seen a a significant increase in that respect uh, as well. Um, There's also, I mean, you know, some people are saying there's going to be more, Either more babies born or more divorces when we all get
2: mm. <laughs> yeah.
0: through all of this. But another issue is the fertility issue. The fertility clinics, it's yeah. my understanding, have been put on hold. So many people who were hoping to become pregnant, um, you know, that's been put on hold for them, and that's already an emotional roller coaster for those people. I, I can't imagine what it's like to, you know, to have been told, you know, we're putting this on hold for you.
2: Oh. Yes, and I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons you become a gynecologist is because you love your patients and you love the, you know, like the mind-body-spirit connection and, and we practice in a very, like, trauma-informed care model. Um, and I do believe that reproductive justice, um, you know, and not being able to have a family if that's what somebody desires, I think that is that is very traumatic, um, you know, and and the reality is even, even though fertility treatments aren't going, the recommendation from um, like the SOGC as well, or like the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, um, is, you know, that to also consider delaying um, like natural pregnancies because we don't really know if there's a congenital impact from COVID 19. Um, we do know that SARS and MERS did not have any congenital impact on um, any babies, but given this new virus, we just, we really don't know. Um, so,
0: yeah, we don't know because we don't have the numbers and we don't have the studies. There's been a very small yeah. study of 29... Of 29- uh, people who have, um, had COVID and, um, were pregnant. Um, and, and that was a very, very small glimmer of hope. Nonetheless, you know, we look for the light in the darkness. Um, yes,
2: and those were though, I think, uh, second and third trimester pregnancies. Yes, they were, um, because the virus hasn't been around long enough for us to study the impact on the first trimester. So I do know that there will be, you know, looking at that going forward, but, um, yeah, and, this has definitely changed the way that people are going to, you know, proceed with their lives.
0: Of course. And I think it's affected so many people in so many different ways, unimaginable ways that, um, you know, when, when we think about it. Um, and that's why I think it's so important that we do research in reproductive and sexual health and gynecological health. It's so critical mm-hmm. to um, yeah. for people. And the other, oh,
2: sorry. Go ahead. Uh, The other thing, just, um, you know, the access as well that people have to contraceptive devices like IEDs and in a clinic setting, um, I know that that has changed as well. Um, And people aren't seeing their primary provider as often as they used to to, you know, have access to contraception. So I think that's also a concern. But um, again, (laughs) to everyone who's listening, like your gynecologists are out there, we care, um, and, you know, we want to make, we want to make this possible and we want people to have access to contraception,
0: um, and reproductive justice. So um,
2: please reach out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we're trying to just carry on as normally as possible is, is the message I'm, if normal is a word, (laughs) Uh, the message I'm getting from you, if we can, your health is your wealth and and every aspect of your health, whether it be reproductive, sexual, gynecological, emotional, spiritual, um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well,
2: doctor. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, no, I just, the, the collateral damage from this is, you know, something that we're also going to have to continue to study going forward. But, um, you know, the, from what I understand in my experience, um, you know, my very junior level of training right now is that, you know, the policymakers are looking at this as well. And from an OBGYN perspective, they are, you know, looking at how to reschedule elective ORs that have been canceled Um And to try and get people the care that they need so that they can live, you know, happy, healthy, productive
0: and stimulating lives. So. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was talking to a friend today, and I said, you know, he was, they're they're talking about bringing the economy back, stimulating the economy, and you know, getting people back. Where, where should we start? The grocers, the you know, or the restaurants, or and I think we need to start with the elective surgeries, especially for those yeah. those people who've been in pain, whether it be physical pain, emotional pain. Um, and so I, I think that's a great place to begin. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being with me. We're going to be talking very shortly to our resident medical doctor, but also in this hour we're going to be talking about how you can connect from a technological standpoint point to your lover. And it's not something I've talked about before. Um, and also triggers, those triggers that occur during this pandemic. But right now, he's clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, occupational physician, medical director, adult ADHD center, Pacific Coast Recovery Care. He is Dr. Gurdeep Parhar, and he's joining me once again to answer your questions about COVID-19 and your health. The number to call is one 877 9898 If you have any questions. Good evening, Dr. Parhar, and happy Easter to you. Good
3: evening, Maureen, and happy Easter to you as well.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me here on this program. Uh, I know that you uh, have a an ADHD center that you are the medical director of, and so I, I had a question uh about people who have been diagnosed with adult ADHD and how difficult is life for them? What challenges do they face in a pandemic? I know that it's not, uh, life isn't as easy, if you will, as before and even wiping everything down and remembering to wear, do we wear a mask in, out, put on gloves, uh, you know, should we be shopping just once a week? And they remain organized to do that once a week for their grocery shopping. So what are some of the challenges somebody with that might face?
3: Yeah, great question, Maureen. I think um, people with ADHD, for just in general, tend to have challenges with focus and concentration. And, and people with ADHD, adults with ADHD, and children with ADHD do a lot better when there's structure. Structure meaning regular timed um, eat- eating schedules, studying schedules, work schedules, exercise schedules, and now with everybody being at home and not leaving their homes for school and work, that's uh, there's a big risk that that structure and that organization's gone. So people are at risk for um, their function deteriorating unless they can put that structure and some discipline around themselves. And you just you touched on the other part, and your previous guest was speaking about anxiety. People with ADHD often have comorbidities of anxiety and. And other, and other issues like obsessive-compulsive disorders and other things as well. And so it's important um, that when we're talking about all these fears around us, infections and people dying and people being hospitalized, that we also think about uh, sort of emotional illness. And people with ADHD are just uh, that much more prone to it, prone to getting anxious.
0: Exactly. And I saw something, I read something along the way, and thank you for sharing all the articles you've been sharing with me. I really appreciate it. But even uh, people without adult ADHD in a pandemic like this, I I happen to be a creature of habit, which is why this was attractive to me. This appealed to me, this particular article. And it said, you know, I've been known to eat the same thing for two years (laughs) in a row, every meal, um, pretty much the same. And so I kind of live by a routine And, and it did recommend for good mental health in this pandemic that anyone, regardless of whether you've been diagnosed with ADHD or not, that it's a good idea to have that routine, you know, getting up, showering, making your bed, you know, answering your emails, eating your breakfast, whatever it is, and exercising. And, and do you feel that's an important um, aspect of this pandemic or dealing with this pandemic?
3: Absolutely. I think for everyone's well-being, um, just the idea. All these days run together. So funny, even before this long weekend, Ma- Maureen everyone was talking about there's a weekend coming up. And for those of us, the weekend days seem almost the same as weekday days, right? Because <laughs>
0: exactly. they all they all sort
3: of running together. It's honest. and so you know if they, three days have gone by and your partner says it's time to shower, it's, it means it means that you haven't been probably taken care of uh, not not mentioning anybody in particular, Maureen, but somebody says you know it's time to time to shower or brush your teeth or you know get out of the house or maybe those sweatpants need to be changed now.
0: Right. Is that, you know,
3: so, so to answer your question, I think we all do better when there's a schedule. And let's not forget some of those um, things like meditation, breathing exercises, yoga, you know, things that you can do, cycling, um, remember the, the two-meter distance, but you can go outside. And, and I think that's important. It's also important to think that you know, there's some work-life balance still going on. Just because you're at home doesn't mean you're working 12, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, you know, still have those structured breaks and limit your hours as you would if you were going to work.
0: I think that is a great point. When I was out walking today, there were um, uh, bylaw officers with pool noodles, (laughs) because that's about two meters long, I guess. And so they were making sure that people were saying, a pool noodle apart.
3: (laughs) And if you accidentally fell into a pool, it'd be safer that way, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I like to use pool noodles, (laughs) Other reasons. In the pool. Okay. um, I have a question for you. And this is a little bit of probably combined um, question around anxiety, mental health, physical health. So uh, this person writes in, uh, dear doctor, did I have a seizure or what else could it have been? I had not fallen asleep, and then I felt myself having extreme shaking all over, out of control. My heart was feeling out of control racing. I tried to take myself out of it, tried to check my pulse and stop, but couldn't, and I couldn't speak. I checked my teeth in the morning as I was sure that I would have a chip in my tooth or something, but nothing. Was it a seizure? No history of that. I'm a 48-year-old healthy woman, just heart palpitations during waking hours at times. I didn't wake up anybody. I was in bed alone. That could have been the problem. Uh, I was in bed alone the time, so no idea if the shaking was real or not. That's not the easiest question.
3: No, Fun. no, it's not. It's it's not. And I can understand how somebody would be um quite anxious after having experienced that. Um just to remind um, the listeners is that when you have a seizure, there's almost always a loss of consciousness that's associated with that. So the fact that um the the, the the person called in the question, wrote in the question says that they they were able to experience symptoms, whether it was the shaking or their not being able to speak, meaning they weren't unconscious. So that makes a seizure less likely. That doesn't mean it wasn't a seizure makes it less likely. Um, the, uh, with a true seizure, usually there's a, a significant loss of consciousness and there's other unique types of seizures where you don't have that. Um, without that difficulty speaking, the rest of those symptoms sounded quite a bit like a panic attack, Maureen, that it might have been some anxiety. Um, it's hard to know because there's so much more I'd want to ask, um, but I think this would be something that you should raise with um, your, your family physician or nurse practitioner, share, them, share the um, symptoms with them and see if they want to do any tests just to confirm that there was nothing Thing, um, more significant kind of going on there. Um, but you're right to, to raise some um, alarm to it, especially because there's no one else to witness
0: it. Exactly. And um, the One of the symptoms of COVID-19, and we have some routine symptoms, if you will, or common symptoms, and we have some peculiar symptoms, but but the rigors, a lot of people talk about the rigors, and that's why when this uh, person described extreme shaking, that's why I was thinking, maybe they were thinking, are these symptoms of COVID-19, or is that something that started off that panic or that fear, if it's not something physical?
3: Absolutely. So we've been telling everybody since the start of this that the main symptoms are a a cough, usually a dry cough, a fever and difficulty breathing. But there's a whole new collection of symptoms that are um, coming to the surface. And one of them are are shakes and rigors, often associated with a fever, but people may not um, be even checking their temperature. And I heard heard another shortage. I'm not sure if you know about this, but apparently there's no thermometers in a lot of drug stores and grocery stores to buy either. Mm -hmm. So people who didn't have a home thermometer may not be able to get one now. So when I say Riger, when a patient says Riger, my first question is, did you have a fever? But if there's no way to check it, or there's no one around you that can sort of touch you, how would you know that you had a fever? So um, a Riger is something that we would be, you know, would raise some concern that is this this one, perhaps not common, one symptom of COVID-19 we need to watch. Um, And the other symptoms, Maureen, you and I have talked about this before. Um, decreased appetite, um, diarrhea, and the big one now that everybody's talking about is decreased smell and decreased taste. Yes, um, to, to some additional symptoms to just just not ignore. I guess is the safest thing to say.
0: Exactly. And another symptom. I don't. I don't know if um, you told me this, but the other symptom was some long-term care residents who had actually succumbed to COVID nineteen. Their caregivers noticed that they had what appeared to be uh, red eye shadow on and they thought that was quite a peculiar symptom but they noticed that in a number of the patients who had died at that particular facility. Had you heard that or was it Uh you that told me that?
3: (laughs) I, I and I had not I uh, usually tell you most important things, but I hadn't heard, hadn't uh, <laughs> hadn't shared that with you. But you know what? What I find fascinating, and, and I, you and I did talk about this earlier in the week. If it wasn't so tragic and so many people weren't dying, um, and the economy hadn't gone down as much as had, this is a fascinating thing that's evolving that we're all studying and learning. And mm-hmm. what we knew two or three months ago, we know so much more right now. And I, I, you know, in a few months, there'll be somebody who stands up with a PowerPoint slide that lists all these symptoms that we hadn't really thought about um, until we had more experience with it.
0: Exactly. And, you know, that thing about the red eye shadow was that that, that had been, you know, other people have heard about it. I'm sure that somebody has read. And, and so I happened to know somebody who had bloodshot eyes. And, and so this particular person was tested because they had bloodshot eyes and the the testing is random and there's no, you know, maybe there's some favoritism there, but you know, it's all over the place. There's nothing standardized, but they were thinking because somebody had told them that bloodshot eyes, but it was actually the red eye shadow was the peculiar symptom. This particular person ended up testing negative for COVID-19. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. On the line is clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, occupational physician, medical director, adult ADHD Center, Pacific Coast Recovery Care, Dr. Gardeep Parhar. Dr. Parhar, I wanted to um, thank you for hanging on the line, and I received an email. Dear Maureen, I've been listening to you for the last few weeks, and the doctor that you have on is awesome. I wish I had a doctor like him. I don't suppose it's possible that he could be my general practitioner. What I have a terrible doctor. <laughs> what do you think of virtual Visits. Uh, Dr. Parher. A lot of doctors um, I, are doing virtual visits these days, correct?
3: I I, I, w- I would suggest the majority of physicians and nurse practitioners are doing virtual visits, and not just family physicians, mm-hmm. but a lot of our specialist colleagues are doing them as well. And it's not because it's you know we're scared of getting sick, because it's it's more that we're trying to protect the public. And our and our chief medical officer, Dr. Henry, said that in person visits are only if it's absolutely essential. So if I physically need to examine uh, a patient, then I'll see them. But otherwise, ninety five percent or higher. Uh, of our visits are done um, by telemedicine and you know what's interesting and if you can think of something positive coming out of this COVID 19 nightmare marine is that all of those of us patients and and physicians that were a little bit hesitant not sure if i want to do this is the technology going to work but we're forced into it and i'm going to suggest to you a legacy from this will be that there'll be a lot more telemedicine and telehealth i as agree we with go you forward. yes
0: yeah. i absolutely agree with you um and what do you so Oh, I have another question, sorry. Um, Dear Maureen, how long do you think I would have to wait to see a specialist these days? Two years? (laughs)
3: It depends. No, not at all. It depends on the specialty. Um, and, And certainly what I would do is um, suggest to your family physician or nurse practitioner if it's something urgent, we can prioritize that. And um, interestingly, a bit like your um, gynecologist specialist that was on earlier, Maureen said, you know, our healthcare system for the other parts of non COVID isn't overloaded right now. Mm-hmm. So we can probably get you in. And if your listener wants to separately email you, Maureen, I can get them some resources or names of people if they need to get into somebody quickly.
0: Oh, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay, so we're five months into this, Dr. Parhar. This COVID-19 that has changed and altered and affected most of our lives. And if you have not been affected yet by it, that's you're not in the norm. <laughs> you are an outlier. Um, but what are the, some of the more critical things that we know about this virus? Yeah, and,
3: and that's one of the challenges Marine, is that over the last few months, there's been a flood of information. And some of it's confusing, some of it's just downright inaccurate. But one of the things that we kind of um, now we're starting to understand. And one of the questions that's come up a lot over and over again is where did this darn thing start? And there's all sorts of conspiracy theories on various governments and militaries creating this virus. And most of that I think we've debunked. What we've found is the virus likely did start from bats. And what was happening, unfortunately, was that the bats were possibly being overstressed in their living arrangements or their other conditions, and, they, and their stress reaction caused them to expel a lot of viruses. Those viruses then went on to some other mammal or animal, and then from that animal went on to humans. There's this 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 thought that started about somebody drinking bat soup is probably totally not true um, but it likely did start from bats to another mammal and then on to humans so that's something that I think we're fairly confident about. Um, The other thing that we're fairly sure about now is how it's spread and we're all pretty confident that it's respiratory particles um, that the virus sits in them. The only thing that we understand more now is it's not just the big respiratory particles that come from coughing, um, sort of sneezing, um, you know um, and and those big particles but we also are worrying about bioaerosols which are the smaller particles that may be and may have some viruses in them from breathing heavily from running um, from singing so that's one of the dangers with this and when people before have asked me well how's this different than SARS SARS was pretty serious yes SARS was very serious one in ten people that got it died which is probably much worse than even COVID right now but the difference there was when people got SARS they were quickly in the hospital and either they lived or they died but they didn't have the opportunity to pass it on to other people in the community. One of the reasons that this COVID-19 virus is being so successful at turning the world upside down is that there's so many asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic people in the community that are passing on the virus before they themselves get sick. And that's really the, the challenge with this right now. And that's why these lockdowns and stay at home are really what we're, um, what's being advised.
0: And that's really with the intention of when we talk about flattening the curve, so that we do not burden the healthcare system, and so there's not a surge of patients that are going in at the same time, and which would overwhelm the healthcare system. We wouldn't have enough masks and gowns and gloves and ventilators and O2 tubing, and there's a lot more supplies that they're even talking about in the media that are needed to care for patients with uh, COVID nineteen.
3: Absolutely. And one of the other aspects is I think we have a better understanding on, on, on what causes death. Um, and what causes death that we're understanding with this is that the virus um, ultimately attacks these ACE enzyme, um, angiotensin converting enzyme which are enzymes down in, this, in the, um, the lower parts of the lung, the um, breathing apparatus and that's how they get in. And once the virus gets in, it starts to replicate itself, it causes the lung to fill up with fluid, um, it causes difficulty having oxygen exchange and that, that then affects the lungs and causes that cough um, and there's some difficulty breathing but what we think is ultimately then leading to people getting really sick is your immune reaction to that virus because you don't have immunity to it, the body does this horrible and really um, um, turbocharged immune response and that's then, it's called a cytokine storm and it's that then goes up to the brain and causes a fever it can go to the liver and cause liver enzymes to get messed up, it can go to the heart and cause the heart to get infected and ultimately this multi-organ sort of um, problem exists, multi-organ failure which then leads to death and that also answers our understanding of why some people get really sick and other people have mild symptoms because everybody has a different immune response to the virus. Some people have an over, um, a, um, a really large immune response and other people a lot less. But that's what's causing the variability why some people get really sick and other people have mild symptoms.
0: Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We're in the final stroke here of the program. Hopefully, you've had a lovely time apart from your family today. You know what? Those family events and those gatherings, they can be stressful. People drink too much. There's lots of fights anyway. Let's face it. Let's be real, people. Okay. You didn't, you weren't too upset that you weren't that close to them this year. Anyway, you'll appreciate them a whole lot more next Easter. Um, so. <laughs> I do want to talk about getting close to people though in a in a pandemic sort of way in an in an unusual sort of way. But um I do have a question. Dear Maureen, are there any specific exercises that are beneficial for our lungs? I think that any kind of exercise is great for to increase lung capacity. Uh, walking is a fantastic exercise. Cycling is great. I do want to say to the cyclists, stay 20 feet behind because there is something called the slipstream and that's your droplets and all of that that could potentially contain COVID. You could have it. Don't forget if you're asympt- asymptomatic. And so that slipstream can last, um, you know, it can be 20 feet. So you need to stay away from those of us not on a bike at the moment by 20 feet. And also, um, of course, walking is six feet. And then the joggers or the runners need to stay away like 10 to 12 feet because there is something called a slipstream. And so the more you're breathing as you're exercising, the more of a slipstream you are creating. So be very Careful. Um, another great exercise as well is yoga. is fantastic for the lungs. Uh, all of those deep breathing in and then mm, on the way out, and all of that um, is fantastic. So anything that helps you to to, to uh, take a deep breath, swimming is awesome as well. As you, if you've ever listened to the show, you know I'm a swimmer. Uh, but we haven't actually started this year, and COVID has delayed us a little bit. But I did suggest that we start six feet apart, of course. Uh, we, I swim in the ocean, uh, should I say. So, six feet apart. Um, and, you know, that's also great. So, anything that's going to increase your endurance and increase that ability to uh, take a deep breath uh, and to help you to breathe easier is very important. <laughs> You can always chant, Maureen. That'll help too, <laughs> if you like. Um, anyway, that was a suggestion from somebody else. All right, so, but it's not a bad idea. Um, <laughs> so, but the important thing is to exercise, get the blood flowing, get out there. You know, stay stay a safe distance behind, and do it every single day. Well, okay. My typical advice, do it every single day. But how are you going to do it every single day if you're apart from your lover? Well, there are ways to stay connected even if you are apart. And there are plenty of ways uh, that technology has already impacted modern dating. Um, and so there we have dating apps and we have sext messaging, DM sliding. The, the list goes on and on. And... Um, you know, the other thing is, uh, I I've, although with some of these, um, the, some of the messag- messaging or videos like FaceTime video is also a great way, however, the only problem, and, and it's because I'm in healthcare, and so I'm always thinking about HIPAA compliance and privacy, and right now we are having, um, you know, there's right now, uh, you might be thinking of, of your lover, and then you're apart from them, and then you might get back together, and then who knows, you know, you may not want to stay with that person. That person might have hurt feelings. And then that person might take that um, screenshot or that video or whatever, and then share it amongst all your friends and relatives. And so that's never good. So I think of that HIPAA or Pipetta compliance, that privacy compliance. And so, there are a number of, if you're going to actually, you know, FaceTime sex if you will, quote unquote FaceTime sex or some type of video um, sex with your lover, your partner, and you can actually do this with somebody that you're living with, okay? This is not limited to, I never limit anything. This is not limited to people who are living apart. You can you know, shake things up if you like in your own home. Uh, You decide. But there are six top HIPAA compliant video conferencing services that you can Use. And VC is, is a great one. Uh, Zoom for healthcare, Simple Practice, TheraNest. So check them out because you might want to use those, especially if you have privacy concerns. And one of my good friends is a privacy lawyer and she's constantly reminding me of the things that I haven't even thought about. And so... Um, It's very important that this is private, that you trust the person that you're with. uh, And also, you know, how do you actually broach this subject uh, with your partner? How do you say, hey, you know, here we are in this pandemic and we're apart now? I mean I I don't want to promote any extramarital affairs but I I'm, I'm sure this is going on. I mean everything is going on. Anything has the potential to go on out there especially if it's not going on in the home. There's a a bigger risk of that pandemic or not. But but this type of and I'll just call it FaceTime sex although know that that um Zoom for business is is HIPAA compliant but uh FaceTime I don't believe is HIPAA compliant. Uh but You know, it's important to remain connected in this time, whether you're in a long-distance relationship that makes intimacy a challenge, or you just want to add something new to your sexual repertoire, um, you know, it's a great way. And so you... it's also going to be very unique and it can build a connection and that's ultimately what intimacy is about. It's that connection. It's that trust. It's that knowing that that person is, is there for you is, is the one for you or that you're connecting, um, in that way. You can also maybe on uh, a zoom or a VC conference, you know, read erotica together or maybe create your own erotica, but there are so many avenues of intimate connection, but, but how do you approach your, your partner about trying this type of connection. Well, it's really the way you you know would talk about sex and intimacy in the past. However, you typically approach people in your life around um, connection. So. You know your partner best. You know your best to kind of ease into the conversation. Is it something that they would might be excited about or nervous about? So you want to understand your partner, know yourself, know what feels like the best route for you, um, and understand that connection happens through this authentic communication. So always be authentic um, when we embark on sexual relationships and, and intimate relationships. Uh, you know, it, the hope is that we get what we. A desire. And so if we can't communicate it directly, then We may not be able to get what we want. And, and that can definitely impact your sexual self esteem. Um, and, you know, and you also have to think about if somebody is not interested in doing this with you, uh, you, you, it's best to respect their wishes. But, um, you know, you want to further that conversation, explore a little bit more. What are your partner's ideas on distance intimacy? And, and also try to find some common ground. Um, because the best sex, the most exciting sex, the hottest sex, whether you are on an iPad or on a boat, is the sex that you're both totally excited to be having. So video type of um, connection can be fun and stimulating. It can be a way to spend time together uh, because there are some times in, in the pandemic world when a, a text or a sex or a phone call isn't just enough. So this is something to explore and um you know, it's a, it's a way to maybe up your intimacy and, and keep things light and fun because it's not easy to be apart from your partner, but at least with some type of uh, visual, we are visual beings and some uh, visual connection, um, your intimacy is on speed dial. So may I suggest that? Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app,